At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. Morning, church. What a privilege and a delight to be here this morning with, with you. And greetings to those of you who are watching online. Welcome. We'd love to have you here in person, but we understand that sometimes things happen and you have to be away, but uh, we greet you as well in the name of Jesus. It is rare that an animated movie takes the world by storm, but it's certainly what happened last year with the Disney movie Encanto. Anybody see that movie? Oh yeah, a lot more people in last service. <laughs> Perhaps it's the, it's the We Don't Talk About Bruno song that has a catchy tune. Yeah, for those of you who don't watch the movie but know the song, that's where it came from. A catchy tune, certainly a very popular song. <clears throat> but it's a, it's a movie unlike any other Disney movie. There's no typical villain. There's no dragon to slay. There's no beast uh, to defeat. In fact, the whole movie is about the Madrigal family, a family that lives and shares a home in Colombia, and in that home is a grandmother, her triplet adult children and their spouses, and her grandchildren. Fifty years earlier, that family received a miracle when the grandfather passed away, and now every child that comes of age receives a gift or in other words, a magical power. I mean, it's Disney after all. Uh, a magical power um, that uh, they use to bless the community. In fact, the movie starts with the songs and with this view of how this family blesses the community. But as the movie progresses, the, the family disintegrates and we get to really see how dysfunctional this family really is. And perhaps that's why this movie is perhaps so popular. Because every one of us can relate to a dysfunctional family, can't we? Yeah. Every one of us, at some level, can relate to a dysfunctional family. That kind of a movie touches a nerve in our lives where it brings to us memories of our own dysfunctional families, our pain, our woundedness, and perhaps even our own blessings as being part of a family. So today we start a brand new series entitled Family, Why Bother? And we're going to journey through the pages of Genesis as we look at the first families in the book of Genesis, and we're going to seek to understand how God validates and affirms and blesses families, and as we discover that, we're also going to seek the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome that dysfunction and to be a blessing that God intended us to be. So in order to do that this morning, we're going to start at the very beginning. We're going to start in Genesis Chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. And we're going to see this morning where it all began, where God created the heavens and the earth and populated the earth with human beings. And we're going to see this morning as we look at verses 26 through 31 that God created humans with dignity, that God designed humanity for dignity. So as we talk about human beings and how they relate to, other, to each other, it begs the question, who are we? And how does that truth impact our relationship with God and our relationship with each other? 
And what we find in these verses that we're going to look at today is that God designed humanity for dignity. And so we are, as human beings, dignity-driven, created beings by God. We have dignity. And that dignity has been designed in us by God. And the answer to that dignity and how it shows up in our lives is found in the design, the function, and the dignity and the distinction that God gives to each one of us. And I want to share with you three reasons or three ways in which we know that humanity is created with distinction or with dignity. The first is that God decrees human dominion. God decrees human dominion. Notice verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So here we are in the first chapter of Genesis reading the account of how God created the universe and the earth and we are at the tail end of the creation story. You have to remember that when the Israelites first heard or read about this creation story, they didn't hear or, 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 uh, or read this in a vacuum. They had, been, they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And in those 400 years, they would have learned what Egypt believed about creation. They would have learned what all of the other surrounding civilizations believed about creation. The majority of ancient civilizations believed that the world was created after a battle with the gods and the winning god using the body and blood of the losing or defeated god to make the world. So that's the, va- the context that the Israelites would have had in their mind. And in to correct that thought, God starts Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1 with, in the beginning, God. There is no argument. There is no invitation for another possibility. There is just God. And that God spoke and into being came whatever he spoke. He said, let there be light and there was Lie. Oh, you've read the chapter. Great. And, and he spoke and he created the earth and the skies and the seas. And then into every sphere that he created, he populated it with things to fill that environment. In verse number 24, we come to the last day of creation. Well, second to the last day of creation, day number six. And with a word, God allows Uh, the beasts of the field and the creeping things and the livestock to appear out of the dirt of the earth and to fill the land. And if you've read chapter 1, which sounds like most of you have, you have this repeating pattern. After each day of creation, God speaks, it's it's created. Then you get this refrain. And there was evening and there was morning, the something day. Right? And you would expect that right here. After the animal showed up, you would expect it to say in the evening and there was morning the sixth day. But you don't, you don't read that. There's a break in the pattern. And into that break and into that pause, God makes a declaration in verse number 26. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Scholars have debated what the word us really means. <laughs> it's a plural. And so since it's plural... What, what or who is God addressing? 
Now, there's a lot of differences of opinions. I'll just tell you mine because it's the right one. Um, if, you, if you disagree, I'll give you the permission to be wrong, and you can talk to me afterwards. <clears throat> but the word us, I believe, is an early indication about the doctrine of the Trinity. Because up in verse number 2, we already see the Spirit of God hovering over the darkness and the chaos of the world. And so it shouldn't be much of a stretch to think about God having a conversation with himself. That the triune Godhead has a conversation around this important pause in the creation story where they talk about creating man in the image of God and in his likeness. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? The word image usually refers to, especially in the ancient context, it refers to a statue that represents something or someone. And ancient customs, because they were pagan, an image was often a statue that was a representation of their God. And you have to remember that the Israelites have that in their mindset when they're reading and hearing these words. And so when God says, let us make man in our image, that's where their mind's going. And yet... It isn't just a God that is being made. Because oftentimes in the ancient world, it wasn't a specific God that was a representation. The image of God was the king or the pharaoh. Only the king was allowed to be the image bearer of the God they served. Everybody else was just scum. (laughs) And so in that ancient context, only the king could bear the image of God. What a mind-blowing statement then when God says, let us make human beings in God's image. That must have blown them away because that is so vastly removed from the thinking of the ancient world. It's not just the king that is an image bearer of God. It is every single human being ever created and born on this planet We are created in the image of God. Amen? Aren't you glad that we are created in the image of God? Yeah, amen. We are the image bearers of God. And in fact, as Christian worldview, every person, all of humanity, are royal image bearers of God. And God corrects the Israelites' understanding and ours by describing humanity as the pinnacle of God's creative act. In creation. And so we are created to represent and reign for God. But the next term is the term likeness. Likeness then further enhances the word image, but with one distinction. You see, we are created in the image of God, but we are not God. We are like God. And one commentator says it this way the first word suggests that human beings will physically represent God in a living and lively way. The second word suggests that they will be godlike in the way they do so. So mankind is appointed as God's royal representatives to rule the earth in his place. You and I are image bearers of God, created in his image and in his likeness. And the rest of verse 26 talks about what we as image bearers do. We are to have dominion. Notice what it says in the rest of verse 26. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps 
on the earth. God has given dominion over all of the creatures and all of the earth to you and me. That's a divine mandate. That you and I who are created in the image of God are given dominion, not to exploit creation, not to be a totalitarian ruler over creation, but to have dominion in a way that displays the love and gentleness and mercy and care of an almighty God displayed in you and me as image bearers. We take care and have dominion over the earth that God has entrusted to us. We can see how God deals with the creation. He is benevolent and gracious. Therefore, as you and I are image bearers of God, we are called to be benevolent, gracious people who have dominion over the earth that he has entrusted to us. We are the image of God. You know, if you visit Washington, D.C., you'll find that there are lots of statues all around our nation's capital. But I think one of the most imposing and perhaps most important statues in Washington, D.C. is housed in the Lincoln Memorial. And in that memorial, there is a giant marble statue of who? Well, you've been there. Great. Or you've seen it. Abraham Lincoln. You don't walk by that memorial and see that statue and immediately think of of George Washington. You don't walk by that statue and immediately think of Benjamin Franklin, do you? Who do you think of? You'll think of Lincoln. Because that statue is created to arrest your mind and mine It's meant to arrest our thinking and our talking to center it around the person that statue represents. And that happens to be Abraham Lincoln. Now put that in this context. You and I are the image bearers of God. That means when you talk and work and deal with your children and drive and work with your coworkers and your colleagues and you deal with your neighbors and wherever else, in whatever context God has placed you, when people see you, they should see who? God. Not much of a stretch there, right? That when they see you, they, their mind and their talking should be arrested to talk about who you and I represent and that's him. That's what it means to be an image bearer of God. Before a watching world, you and I are given the dominion over the world. And the way you and I deal with the world God has given us, the way you and I deal with the resources God has given us, the way you and I deal with our families and our neighbors and the work that we do, all speak to how well we image the creator who gave us such dignity to be made in the imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. Aren't you glad that you are not the scum of the earth, somebody, somebody or something to be squashed under the foot of an almighty God, but you and I are dignified, dignity-created beings who are made in the image of God to reflect and to represent Him with dominion over His creation. But that's just one way that we see how God has created humanity for divinity. He's given us dominion. But the second way that that we see that in verse number 27 is that God designs human distinction. God designs human distinction. Notice verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the first poem in the Bible, this verse. In Hebrew, this verse has three lines. The first two lines speak once again about our identity, that we are 
made in the image of God. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. It talks about the comprehensive scope of the dignity of all human beings made in the image of God, made to represent God, made to mirror and reflect his glory. But when we come to the third line, it talks about distinction. It says, he created them male and female. Within the unity and the dignity of all human beings, God has established a distinction. God has established a distinction. And here in verse 27, that distinction is made up of our gender. We are created male and female. So God separates the human species, all of humanity, into two distinct but equal image-bearing categories, male and female. So when you read the word man in verse number 27, it comes from the Hebrew word Adam. Adam, that's why God named the first man Adam, because it literally means man. But it's not man in the male sense, it's man as in the generic humankind sense. So God created Adam, humanity, and he created a male Adam and a female Adam. You got to put your thinking caps on because this is going to get deep, all right? If you thought the, the announcements were difficult to follow, put, it, put the extra seatbelt on. We're, we're going for a ride. <laughs> All right? God created Adam in two ways. He created a male Adam and a female Adam. You with me? What that says is that there is a plurality in humanity that mirrors the plurality of God. Did you watch, catch that? That you and I are not... Uniform, there is a distinction within us that mirrors the fact that God is three in one. That's what verse number 27 is telling us. There is a plurality in mankind that mirrors the plurality within the Godhead. But notice that even in the midst of the plurality, it's all equal. While we are distinct, there is equality. Because both male and female are image bearers of God who have dignity by being the representation of God on earth. Now that would be quite revolutionary in the ancient world and perhaps even in modern times. Because in the ancient world, women were considered far less than men. And everybody was considered to be less than the king. And here God comes along and says, no, no, no. Men and women are both image bearers of God. And while distinct, they have equal value, equal worth, and equal dignity. We are created in the image of God. And we are created male and female. We live in a very hyper-individualistic culture today. Where we're trying as a culture to decide our gender and our sexual orientation based on our feelings and our opinions. But can I gently say that the Bible is very clear, especially in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that our gender is ordained by God at the point of conception. That it isn't we who get to decide what we are. It is God who decides what we are. And what God is saying is that he has made us male and he has made us female And we both have dignity and value and worth. 
and we both have dignity because we are made in the image of God. The Bible is that clear. So here's the question I think some of you are asking or should be asking. How does or how do men and women image God? If we didn't have a service next hour, we'd be here for, for the rest of the day trying to unpack that question because it's worthy of being unpacked. Let me just give you a, a, just a flyover, just a taste of how to answer that question. How do men and women image God? Men image God by speaking the truth in love in order to bring life and order out of chaos. We know that because in chapter 1, that's what God has been doing. God has been speaking into the darkness and the formlessness and void of the chaotic mass of creation to bring order and life out of it. We've seen that in chapter 1. In chapter 2, when God places Adam in the garden, what is the first thing he gives him to do? He brings all the animals to him and he tells Adam, name them. Why? Only an owner gets to name the things he owns. Only a parent gets to name his child or her child. The reason that God has Adam name the animals, God is teaching Adam how to steward power and to steward authority. And so by naming the animals, he is bringing order out of the chaos of unnamed animals and bringing life and order. That's how men reflect the image of God, we bring order out of chaos, life out of death and darkness, and speaking the truth in love. And when we do that well, men, we image God. And we do that well. So women, how do women reflect the image of God? Women reflect the image of God by being a helper. Now, don't throw anything at me. <laughs> by being a helper created to dispel loneliness. And women do that by nurturing rich relationships. Many people, and you laughed, but many people think the word helper is derogatory. That is far from the truth. You see, the word helper is the word God uses to describe himself. In Psalm 46 and verse 1, the Lord is a refuge and strength, a very present... Oh, you've read that verse. What is that word again? He is a refuge and strength, a very present. Same word. Why would God use a word that is derogatory to describe himself? He wouldn't. God is our help. And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we see God coming to help his people as a warrior who comes alongside his people to rescue them from their enemies and to throw off the oppression of those who seek to destroy his people so that he can keep and maintain and cultivate a beautiful relationship with his people. That is what it means to be a help. And women do that beautifully when they enhance the beauty that they have around them and as, as they build beautiful bridges of relationships and nurture and cultivate those relationships to enhance the life of the family and of the church and of the world. That's how men and women image God in a nutshell. And you know what a beautiful picture of that looks like? It's in marriage. It's when one man and one woman come together. It's when two different people, 
come together to be one under God, when plurality becomes unity, as two flesh become one under God, we image a beautiful picture of God for the world to see. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're a single man or a single woman, you can't image God. I've just, showed, I've just talked about how you do. You can, you will image God. But a beautiful picture of the image of God is when two come together to be one. We are created with distinction. That distinction given to us at the point of conception, not a choice that we get to make, a choice that he made for us, when he created you and me so beautifully and so wonderfully in our mother's womb, he set the gender. He set our identity. We are made in the image of God. You know, these things are very, very controversial in our world today. Oftentimes, when we're having these conversations outside the walls of a church, conversations get heated, people get angry, relationships get broken. But can I tell you, as image bearers of God, we can't get to that level. You and I are called to image God. And that means we deal with people the way God dealt with you and me. He dealt with you and me in love and grace and mercy. And when we're having conversations with people who disagree with us, we cannot stand on the truth of God's word dogmatically and and rigidly with no grace. We have to make room for grace. We have the truth, but we can't beat them over the head with it, if you understand what I'm saying. We need to be building bridges of grace and mercy covered in prayer if we're ever going to make an impact in this world. Can I just say, nobody has ever entered the kingdom of God because how great your argument was. (laughs) Nobody ever entered the kingdom of God by how eloquent you and I were ever going to be. The only person who can ever bring people into the kingdom of God is God. And so our job is to represent Him well. To share the truth, not beat them over the head with it. To love them, even when they're living a lifestyle that's different. We learned in the meals with Jesus that we have to spend time with the sinners and the prostitutes and those who don't believe what we believe. Because that's the way we get to point them to Christ. And when you and I live as image bearers of God, living as God intended us to live, we point the world to Christ. And that's where God will convict hearts and minds and will bring them into the kingdom to join us. Not because we're beating them over the head with the Bible. Church, I hope and pray you understand what I'm saying. Because it's so easy to get caught up in all that the world is trying to do. Can I also just say that if you're here today and you're struggling with same-sex attraction, you're struggling with your gender, identity, or your sexual orientation, Can I gently and humbly just point you back to God's word? You see, your opinions and your feelings change hour by hour, moment by moment, day after day. But God's word never fails. It's been written thousands of years ago. It will continue to exist and continue to be true even when we're done and dusted. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word says it will never pass away. So your job and mine as children of God is to submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. And no matter how strong that attraction might be, we must submit to God's word for the sake of Christ. I hope and pray that you will. If you're here today and and that's still a confusion for you, I'd love to talk to you. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray for you. I'll be outside those doors. Please come find me. I would love to pray for you. 
and show you and share with you the love Jesus has for you because there's no other place that you can find the forgiveness and the release from all of that than through the power of the Spirit of God. And so that's how we are created with dignity. We have been given dominion and we have been given distinction. But more than just those things, there is a functional aspect to the identity and dignity that God has given us. And that brings me to my third point, and that is that God directs human duty. God directs human duty. Verse number 28 says, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Verse number 28 is considered the cultural mandate of the world. Because in it, not only does God tell us that he intentionally created us, but it tells us that God has given us the the opportunity, the privilege to subdue his creation. That word subdue is tied very closely to the word dominion we saw in verse number 26. The dictionary definition of subdue is to overcome or to bring under control. But that word doesn't have a tyrannical element to it. It's not a totalitarian kind of word. It's a word that has to do with love and gentleness and cultivation and flourishing. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, when God places Adam in the garden, he tells Adam to work and keep the garden. Now, many of you think that work is part of this curse of sin, right? And so we're allergic to work. But let me tell you, burst your bubble a bit, work is before the fall. Work was part of God's mandate for Adam to work and keep the garden. Those words are not meant to exploit creation. It's not meant to do whatever we wish with creation. It's so that instead of destroying creation, we are cultural creators and conservators. We are helping the world flourish so that we can flourish. But not only are we called to subdue the earth, God goes on to tell Adam and Eve and all of us that we are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And for Adam and Eve, that means that they were to have children, they were to procreate, and in their procreation, they were to create more image bearers of God who would go out into the world to fill it, and wherever they went, they would cultivate and they would flourish in the places God had set them and make the areas that God sent them into little pieces of Eden so that the whole world would look like the Garden of Eden. Make sense? That's be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Adam and Eve were to have children. Those children will go into the world, and the whole world would turn into the Garden of Eden. That was the cultural mandate. By the way, that hasn't changed. 
That mandate is still in effect for you and me. You and I are called to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth that wherever God places us, in whatever little field we have, in whatever little apartment God has given us, in whatever area of the world we find ourselves in, that little place needs to turn into Eden so that when people look at it, they see God. That's the call that God has for each and every one of us. And at the end of the sixth day, God surveyed all that he had made. And he said it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Humanity, the crowning achievement of God's creative act in Genesis 1. Created with dignity, with honor, with distinction created as the image bearers of God to have dominion and to subdue the world and to have the duty to fill the world with image bearers. And that's the perfect, beautiful, harmonious picture of what the world is supposed to be. But that didn't last long, did it? It didn't last long at all. In fact, very soon in the next uh, chapter or two, we find that Adam and Eve, the first humans who've been given all of this and shown all of this, They decided to go their own way. They rebelled against God. They decided to take matters into their own hands. And as a result, they got kicked out of the garden, kicked out of paradise. And they got cursed. The ground was cursed and so on. Why? Because of sin. And because of sin, the image of God that each one of us has is marred. It's marred by sin. And it's because of that sin that you and I stand under the wrath of God. We stand under the wrath of God because of our sin. But God, but God in His grace and in His love sent us a representative. He sent us the second person of the Trinity. He sent us Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus came into this world to be the perfect man. He showed us what it looks like to have authority and to have dominion and to do it in meekness and in humility. He showed us how to love and to rule and to reign and to be loved. He showed us what it looked like to be the perfect man on this planet in the way he lived and the way he conducted himself. The ultimate expression of being the perfect man we find on the cross. He didn't go to the cross because he failed. He went to the cross because you and I failed. It was our sins that sent him to the cross, bleeding from every angle and every side, bleeding for you and for me. But you see, where you and I failed, where you and I failed the image of God, where you and I failed to have dominion over this world, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power when he was raised from the dead and he has been ascended to heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father and there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, are you glad for that day that's coming when Jesus will rightfully and fully rule and reign over the earth. Amen. That is Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who died in our place, taking our sin so that you and I might be set free. So now I have a question to ask. If Jesus is the perfect man, he's the perfect male, what's the perfect female equivalent? The church. Nothing is by accident in the Bible. 
You see, if Jesus is the perfect male, the church is supposed to be the sinless, spotless bride of Christ. That is why the church is called the bride of Christ. The church is the perfect equivalent to Jesus. And if you remember what I said about females and women and how women image God, well, the church is no different. The church images God beautifully when it becomes life-enhancing, beauty-enhancing, nurturing rich relationships so that when you and I gather together in worship today like this and when we go to our life groups and we, we celebrate together and we build relationships, when we serve our world and when we love one another and we show the world what Jesus looks like, we're imaging God. That's the purpose of the church, to display the glory of Christ in us through us, so that as we live in this world, we will draw the world to Christ through the life God has given us. Amen? That's the purpose of the church. Friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, may I introduce you to him? He came and he died. He died for you and he died for me. Not because of any mistake on his part. He was sinless. He was spotless. He was perfect. He was unblemished. And yet he loved you and me so much, he would die on a cross. If you're here today and there's all kinds of darkness and turmoil and chaos going inside of you, this world isn't going to satisfy you. This world doesn't have the answers. This world is looking for the answer. Can I tell you the answer is found in Scripture and the Scripture points us to the cross. Because it's at the cross where love died for you and for me. The justice of God and the love of God met together at the cross for you and for me. So that those of us who would repent of our sins and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be saved. The chaos in your life can become order when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ because that's what Jesus does. He brings life where there is death he brings order where there is chaos. For you and me who do know and love Jesus Christ, may encourage us to live, live for him, to image him well, to show the world what he looks like by the way we live, by the way we act, by the way we talk, and in every aspect of our life, that we would draw all men to him through us. Father, I thank you for these words. Father, I thank you for reminding us of who you are and the dignity with which you have created us. That we are your representatives placed here on this earth to represent you, to image you, to show the world what it looks like to be your child. May we do that well. And Father, forgive us for all the times where we have failed. Forgive us for all the times where we've messed up. And would you empower us once again with your Holy Spirit to do in us what only you can do, to transform us and change us, to mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ, so that the world would see you in and through us, and ultimately that you would be glorified because all of our worship and all of our, our honor and all of our praise belongs to you. And we'll give you the thanks for all that you have done and all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. 
head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.